Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Matt Peters. Matt is a research scientist at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, AI2, where he explores applications of deep neural networks to a variety of NLP models. Prior to joining AI2, he was a director of data science at a Seattle startup and a postdoc investigating cloud climate feedback. He has a PhD in applied math from the University of Washington. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're talking about uh, your paper accepted at NACL and previously accepted at iClear. <laughs> and the title of the paper is Deep Contextualized for Representations. Some people might read the title and think, okay, yet another paper describing slightly different way of embedding word types. Could you explain why the model you're proposing here is fundamentally different? Yeah, so the main motivation for this work was to overcome some of the traditional, some of the, the drawbacks of traditional word representations. And in particular, the one that we directly address is that traditional word vectors represent each word with a single vector. In many cases, this assumption uh, may not be the most suitable, um, in particular for words like the English word play, for instance, where the meaning might be highly dependent on the context. It might have different syntactic roles depending on how the word is used, whether it's a noun or a verb. It might have different word senses depending on uh, context which it's used. In order to really try and form an accurate representation for this means we have to look at the entire context. And so what our paper does, uh, as you can might guess from the title, is that instead of representing each word with a single vector, we represent each word with a vector that is dependent on the entire context in which it's used, a contextualized word representation. So the immediate reaction someone may, may respond is, well, whenever I use an LSTM or any kind of RNN on top of my word type representations, I'm getting this benefit already from the, the context in that sentence. Yes, that's absolutely the case. And in fact, we see this, that all, most all state-of-the-art NLP models nowadays use some type of contextual representation on top of the pre-trained word type. Uh, however, for mo many practical NLP problems of interest, we are relatively limited by the amount of training data that we have. And what we do in our paper is that we learn these word representations from a very large amounts of unlabeled data similar to traditional word representations. And in fact, we train a very large scale bidirectional language model that gives us these word representations. And then by doing so, we can benefit both from large amounts of unlabeled data, um, in addition to the more task-specific contextual representations that you would expect when you put this into your supervised system. Cool, so this paper is the sequel of an earlier paper at ACL that you published addressing a similar problem. Could you start by describing the model uh, in that paper and then explain how this paper generalizes? Sure, so our paper that we had at ACL, actually we'll leave you one of the co-authors on this paper, was we looked at two sequence tagging tasks. We looked at primarily named entity recognition, but then also uh, syntactic chunking. What we did in this paper is and we had the intuition that we wanted to learn these contextualized representations from lots of labeled data. And here we used a bidirectional language model where the language model was completely separate in both forward and backwards directions. And then 
we used just the top layer representation from the model. So these are, as state-of-the-art language models are these days, they are tend to be deep LSTMs. So there's several different layers of LSTMs. And in the ACL paper, we just used the top layer. And then we use this as a type of contextualized representation that we then added to our supervised supervised NLP model. The deep contextualized paper that we have it generalizes this in a couple of ways. Uh, the most important one is that we found that by using all layers of the pre-trained bidirectional model that we got performance improvements in the downstream tasks. We have some results in the paper that try and explain why this is, but the high-level intuition is that in these deep systems, the different layers of the model learn different types of contextual information, where the lower layers in the model, for instance, learns lower-level information better things like, for instance, uh, can do parse-speech tagging better than the upper layer, whereas the upper layer can learn to do higher level sort of more semantic tasks, things like word sensitive ambiguation better. And depending on the downstream task that you actually care about, your, your task model may need different types of information. It may, if you're say doing, I don't know, maybe a name density recognition or something like this, that might be sort of very dependent on the syntax, then it might rely more on the lower layer. But if you're doing a higher level task, then maybe it might rely more on the higher level. And so exposing all of the internal layers of the bidirectional lambda model to the downstream model improves the overall performance. Uh, we also did some other things. One of the main results that we got is that we tried this approach on a wide variety of different NLP tasks, and we showed that across the board it improves performance very significantly. Uh, we also have some differences in terms of how we train the language model, uh, but there are sort of, I think, a secondary to the, the sort of the main idea that we can use all of the different layers. So just to make this clear for people who haven't read this paper, I guess, as Walid said earlier, it's pretty typical in NLP these days to have, say, if your input to your model is a sentence or a paragraph, you'll represent each word in this text with a word vector and then pass that through a, a BioSTM to contextualize the word vector so that you have word representations that depend on other words in the sentence. How is what you're doing different from just adding a few layers of BioSTM underneath, right? Because you're saying, let's get a, a base word representation, you use a character level uh, and a character level convolutional neural network instead of just a single word vector, but then you pass that through some BioSTMs and then that goes into the input of whatever model you had previously. You're replacing what was like a glove vector with the output of these BioSTMs. So, so what's different from in what you're doing from just adding a few more layers of, of LSTMs? I think one of the key differences is that these layers are, are pre-trained on lots of unlabeled data. So for the, the typical size of an NLP task, you might have maybe a few hundred thousand, maybe for a, a large data set like SNLI or Squad, maybe you have a few million tokens, but a relatively small number. And the models that we are using, the state-of-the-art models, you can increase the performance by just simply adding more layers or adding more parameters. The, the amount of information you have from the supervised signal just doesn't allow you to do that. In our system, we pre-train the bidirectional 
language model on lots of unlabeled data. So in our case, we trained it on a corpus of close to a billion tokens, and you could train it on a larger data set if you wanted. And so as a result, you can train a very large, very high capacity model. The LSTMs that we use in our case have a hidden state of about 4,000. And as a result, we can learn these very rich, very general purpose representations that you can't get from just using your supervised data. So to contrast, what are the sizes of your hidden uh, units in, um, in the model which actually does this test, the downstream test? Yeah, a typical size for a hidden unit in a downstream test might be a few hundred, two or three hundred or something like that. Depends on the task. So can we go in the details of the bidirectional language model uh, how, and how do you train it? Some more details on this. Sure. So I guess first let me explain what we mean by bidirectional language model since this is an idea that uh, may be unfamiliar to many of the listeners. So a traditional language model is what I call four-direction language model where the objective function that it's trained is to take some partial uh, context and then try and predict what the next word is going to be. We can train an analogous backwards direction language model that operates in the exact same way, except it will take the subsequent context of a word and try and predict what the previous word is. It's the exact same objective function, and it's analogous to the backward direction of uh, an LSTM and a bidirectional LSTM. And then in our paper, we have both a forward direction and backwards direction language model, and they're trained jointly. The weights are not shared for the forward and backwards direction for the LSTMs, but they are shared for the word representations, the context uh, independent word representations, and then also the soft text layer. So the architecture that we use, we use a fully character-based input. We don't have any explicit word embeddings. And we have a, a large number of character engram filters, about 2,000 of these different different widths. And then this produces a fully character-based input. And then we send these through a couple of highway layers and then project this down to, in our case, uh, 512 dimensions. And then this context-independent representation is then sent through two layers of bidirectional LSTMs. And then the, it's trained with the final softmax layer at the top that is used to give us the probability of the next order of the previous word. The entire thing is trained jointly on a very large unlabeled data across a few GPUs for uh, some length of time. So there's a couple of things that I find surprising about this architecture. One is that you don't use any uh, word level embeddings or parameters at the input, even though like we don't always, we can't always as humans guess the meaning of a word by looking at it's like um, like the current like the ingrams of characters that's contained in it. So oftentimes you find words that are very similar, more, uh, more morphologically similar, orthographically similar, but they have very different meanings. So maybe the word pair and fair, or uh, you know there are many examples like this. Do you have any insights on why? Uh, it doesn't work, it's not worth it adding uh, also word embedding. Yeah, I think I made the explicit choice to not use word embeddings for a couple of reasons. First, I wanted the model to be as general as possible. In particular, I wanted to be able to deal seamlessly with unseen 
tokens that aren't in the training data or ones that are maybe very rare in the training data. And this is a partly due to practical considerations. It's sort of, there's always this question when you're using things like glove vectors, okay, there's always tokens in my training data that aren't in the vocabulary, the glove vocabulary. So what do I do in this case? You don't have to worry about it in this case. And I think also because we have these bidirectional LSTMs that the lower layers, the character representation, the context-independent representation captures mostly morphology and doesn't really capture much of the particular semantics. I think that those are mainly captured in the LSTM layers. But because we have these, then it's not really necessary to, you don't have to push all this information down into the context-independent word representation. You can put it in other parts of the model. How big is your biggest n-gram filter? We have up to seven characters, I think. So if you think of like what's the largest number of characters in a morpheme in English, it's really not that big. So you can probably get most morphemes with these n-grams that you're talking about and then compose them. And so like pair and fair, your example, you could capture those with the filters. Like they could each have their own filter, for instance, and you'd, you'd still be just fine. Um, if you, I don't know enough linguistics to know how big lengths or other languages get in terms of morpheme size, but seven characters seems quite large for any morpheme in, in any language. Do you see that the performance, uh, like, I guess you, you chose seven because it gave you better results? Like. Uh, actually, to be honest, I didn't spend that very much. Training these models takes a long time, requires a lot of GPU hours, and so I didn't have access to an entire data center of GPUs. So I uh, picked something and it worked reasonably well enough. I think the, 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 the language model that we trained, it's decent language model. If I compare it to ones that are previously been published with similar architectures that are state-of-the-art, then uh, the language model that I trained is not as good. The perplexity is a little bit higher. But I think in the end, for the quality of the presentations you get, it, it doesn't matter very much. It's a, very much a second order effect. So the other point that I wanted to ask about is the sharing the parameters of the output layer of the language model. Um, so you, I think you share this by sharing the, the parameters of the softmax layer. I think this means the parameters to multiply the final, the final hidden states from the forward and from the backward directions. And they seem to carry different kinds of information. So why would we want to combine them and basically treat them as if they're coming from the same vector space? I'm uncertain. Why would you say you think that they should carry different types of information in the forward and backward direction? Just the fact that the forward language model summarizes or provides more information about the context that happens before word K, and the backward gives you the information from everything that happens after word K. I guess including the work. Oh no, excluding the work. Yeah, I guess I haven't thought about this too much. So um, I can't really give an articulate answer to this. My intuition is that the the softmax the softmax word representations should be words that would have, could expect to appear in a similar context. So the word representation for computer might be similar to the word representation that for a laptop or something, because it's something that if you're training a language model, you might say, well, I'm not really sure if the next word should be computer or laptop, but they're probably interchangeable in many cases. 
seems to me as though this would probably also be the case whether I'm looking at the subsequent context or the core context. I guess I don't think that I necessarily agree with your statement that they should capture different information. And if you look at typical ways of training word vectors, you look at contexts on both sides, right? You look at a window of like five words on either side of the word that you're looking at and you try to predict the words that are in the context on either side of you. Right, and you also like ignore the order um, but that that has more to do with uh, kind of like reducing the complexity of the model, right? Because I do remember a paper by Wang Ling where he tried actually making a diff having different parameters for uh, like the words that come after and comes before, and it shows improvements. But of course, yeah, the number of parameters increases. How do you like practically? How do you combine the forward and backward at the final at the final layer? Yeah, they're they're not combined in any way. They're independent. So the forward direction, the final hidden state is, and also I should say that while the, the hidden state for our language model is about 4,000 dimensions, there's also a projection layer inside the LFCM that projects it down to 512 dimensions. The final output dimension of the final forward direction is 512 dimensions, and that's the same size as the softmax embedding. So they're computed well, the weights are shared, but the, the loss function is essentially the sum of the loss for the forward and the backward direction. But, so basically, you're forcing the both directions to have uh, hidden states that belong to the same vectors by training them this way, right? Yeah. Great. So you compute the. So can we move forward to uh, how you compute the vectors that represent the in this token in this in the downstream task? So you call this Elmo vectors in the paper. And it, it's defined as a linear combination of the intermediate layer representations in the bidirectional language model. Um, and you learn uh, the weights uh, for fitting the uh, for fitting these uh, these different. You learn the weights for the different layers by uh, by fitting on the label data for downstream task. So would it make sense to extend this uh, so that the weights are dynamically computed depending on the context? My understanding is that in your paper. The weights are going to be the same regardless of where you are, as long as you're doing image recognition. Do you think it, it's worthwhile to try also uh, learning different ways depending on the context? Yeah, that is that is a, a good question. That is actually something that we tried and we couldn't get it to work. Maybe provide a, I'll provide a little bit more of an answer for that. So the in, in the paper that we have, we the way in which we combine, so we have these, in our, in our case, the model that we used has three layers that we use in the final downstream task. We have the context independent representation, and then we have the two LSTM layers. And these are all combined with um, just a simple learned scalar weighting. So the downstream model, like the NER model, will, will introduce three parameters that are learned as part of the downstream task that allow the model to weight these different layers in different proportions. And we tried a, a number of different other weighting functions. And one of the ones that we did try would be something like a true attention function where these weights might be dependent on the context that we're, or the, the, the word that we're trying to, the, the word that in which we're getting representation for. We tried a couple of different variations of this and we couldn't get it to work. I would say in general, Whatever we did to this weighting function to make it more complicated than a scalar just decreased performance or didn't improve it. So we, in the end, went with the simplest one. So you're adding a thousand dimensions 
to all of my task-specific LSTMs, right? So I'm taking these word vectors. Your Elmo vectors give me a thousand-dimensional vector times three. I get three of these. I'm going to do a weighted combination of them. Um, but but this means that it basically blows up the size of my LSTMs in my task-specific model. And it was already the case, as you said, that we can't make these bigger without decreasing performance because it's just over-parameterizing things. So why is it that the task-specific model can handle this extra capacity? Yeah, this is something that we um, could have looked more carefully at. In, in some cases, it may be possible to actually reduce the hidden dimension of your task-specific model. In our case, we kind of wanted to make the claim and that it doesn't matter. You can just put these number vectors into your model and really not do any other hyperparameter tuning, and it just works. It just improves performance, and in pretty much all of the cases we tried, that was that was the case. The we do add a fair amount of dropout to the ML vectors um, in the task model, so we found that this helps in overfitting. But I don't have a good answer for that. It, it uh, one of one of the, the upshots of this is that it does in, increase the number of parameters in your task LSTM. So I guess I can think of a whole lot of other um, papers around this same time. Like a lot of people were thinking of very similar things. We have the co-vectors from the Salesforce folks. We have the unsupervised sentiment neuron from OpenAI, I believe that was. We have skip thought vectors. We have sentence representation learning um, from a lot of people looking at SNLI and other kinds of things. Why do you think this was successful and more successful than these other approaches? Like, what's, what's different about what you're doing? I think that there's probably a couple of answers, and I think that it depends on the other prior works that we're comparing to. I think in the case of the sentence representations, the model is fundamentally different. We're not learning sentence representations. We're learning word representations or word and context representations. And as a result, we can use them for much more wide variety of tasks that you couldn't use for, for, for particular if you decide a sentence representation. I think the the difference between the results that we had and the results from Cove, I think, are not a clear answer for this, but my intuition is that it's due to the objective function that we use. The Cove vectors are are learned using machine translation system. And in our case we're using bidirectional language modeling. And I think that the, these objective functions are very different and they force the, the encoder in the machine translation system and the bidirectional language model to learn very different things. And we actually see this, that the quality of the representations that we get are much better than the ones that you get from, from code. For instance, if we, in the paper, we have some analysis towards the end of the paper where we look at just trying to analyze what the types of intrinsic properties that you get from the language model versus versus code, for instance. And if you look at just part of speech tagging accuracies or word synthesis ambiguation, which are the two that we considered, the overall absolute performance you get from the, the bidirectional language model approach is significantly better than you get from the machine translation approach. So you, you experimented with quite a number of, of tasks in this paper. Would you like to give more details about the key results that you had? Sure. So I would say that the key empirical result that we have in the paper is that we evaluated this approach on uh, six different, very different NLP tasks. And we tried to choose a wide variety of ones that were representative of the types of tasks that people were working on today. 
And so the tasks that we considered were question answering. We used the squad data set for that. Textual entailment, we used the SNLI data set for this. Um, semantic role labeling and co-reference resolution, both of these used onto notes. Named entity recognition used the uh, Connell 2003 data set. And then sentiment classification, which used the Stanford a sentiment tree bank. And in all cases, we took a strong baseline model. In some cases, it was the previous state-of-the-art model. In other cases, it was a model that was uh, a strong baseline model, but maybe was a few percent behind the state-of-the-art model. And we more or less just added Elmo to it without doing anything else. And in all cases, it significantly improved the overall performance. And in all cases, it gave us a new state-of-the-art result for all of these different tasks. And this, I think, is a very strong empirical result because it says that the representations you get from these element vectors are very generally useful across a very broad suite of NLP tasks. I really like this result. It's kind of hard to not really like this result. So your relative error reduction is like in the 20s for some of these tasks. It's kind of amazing. When I think about this, I think about a conversation I had with Dan Roth like a year and a half ago, and that we talked about this. The we talked about this when Dan was on the podcast with us, and it's how do you expect your model to learn English from this auxiliary task, like from some end stream task objective? It's a whole lot better if you can get a model that knows English in some sense, and then just have to learn the specifics of your task. And I think we're this certainly isn't all the way there, but it, it's getting kind of close where we're trying to predict the next word get a model of language of English and then use that, use the feature representations that we learn from this just very general, let's learn English task to do better at, at downstream applications. And this is a really nice demonstration that this, this idea works. So great job. So there are many ways in which you can use the Elmo vectors that you learned uh, like by linearly combining the different layers of the bilateral language model in the downstream model. Do you have any recommendations for people who would like to use this on how to pick or to plug them plug them in? Yeah, so we, we give some, some general rules of thumb in the paper. And then also, oh, I shouldn't also mention that we have the, the pre-trained models available. We have code available in both um, PyTorch integrated into the Allen NLP toolkit that we're developing here at AI2. And then also we have TensorFlow code available on GitHub. And also, you can check the, the GitHub repositories for also some rules of thumb. But as a general rule of thumb, what you can do is you take the, the Elmo vectors and you learn a linear combination of the different layers and apply some dropout. You might want to add a fair amount of dropout depending on your task. And then um, essentially include them in the model where you're using law vectors or or work to back vectors or other pre-trained vectors right now. And this will almost certainly improve your, your task performance. In some cases, depending on the size of the data set or the particular architecture, we also found that you can get some smaller additional gains by including the MR representations at other layers of the model. And in particular, your task model, if it has a, a bidirectional STM or other types of contextual presentation in it now, then you can also include another Elmo layer at the output of your task RNN. And this also may improve performance too. And so it doesn't always improve performance. It depends on the task, depends on the architecture. We have some ablation results in the, 
in the paper that I showed us for a couple of the tasks. All right, so I guess my last question, do you expect any improvements on top of what you've shown if you were able to, like in a multitask learning setup, train on both, like train both the language model and the, like the model uh, where you integrate this in simultaneously instead of pre-training the language model and then using it while fixing its parameters for the downstream task? It's possible. I don't want to say conclusively whether that's the case or not, because I think that that's still very much an open question. I tried, although not very hard, but I did try a little bit to try and fine tune the LO, the, the bidirectional weights as part of the task supervision. And I couldn't get it to work. But again, I didn't try very hard. And it's possible that there's, uh, you may be able to get this to, to, to work if you try and do some type of joint training or multitask training or fine tuning or something like this. So what do you think is the most exciting next direction for this line of work? Like it would, you don't need to give away your like secret next research project, but this seems, feels like it opens up a whole lot of avenues for new research. Uh, like how do you push this idea forward? Like what do you, what do you think comes after this? I think that there is a, a couple of directions. I think one of the things I think that is really interesting to me about this is that one of the other results we showed in the paper is that the amount of training data that you need can decrease rather significantly. So we have some, again, we have some results in the paper that show that if, for instance, you have a very small training data set that, and you have Elmo, that you can get performance that is on par with the data set that is many times larger. And so I think it's very interesting to me that in for particular small NLP data sets, or ones where you're otherwise limited by lack of annotated data, that this could give you further gains that you couldn't get ordinarily. Maybe it might make neural models competitive or even state-of-the-art in these cases. All right, great. So this was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you.